Hey everybody in Serial Killer Country, my name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast devoted to deep dives into the killers we love to learn about. Each week, Brian and I discuss two true crime stories that resonated with us, and then I'll lead you down the dark path of learning about who a killer was, how they grew up, how they killed, and most importantly, how they got caught. Then Brian ends our podcast with a touch of the paranormal, a story about cryptids or the creepy side of life. And we just want to say thank you so much for listening to us this week. It has been a great week. It was so amazing to see everybody so hype. I was watching the stats and just was very excited. <laughs> People were very hyped to see us come back from our little uh, hiatus. Hiatus. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm um, glad to hear it. And so this week in true crime is not it's not good, but it's good. Okay. Okay. All right, so here's the headline that had me screaming this week. R. Kelly has been found guilty of sexually abusing uh, and urinating on a 14-year-old girl in an infamous tape. He also has been found guilty this week of other instances of child sexual assault and child pornography. And the reason why this was so poignant for me, right, is because I was like a teen girl when that tape came out. And everybody justified watching it. And everybody just, oh, no, she looks grown, blah, blah, blah. But, like, finally, finally, finally. <laughs> now, because the reason why he's in prison now is because of the adult women who he pretty much, like, kidnapped. Right. And, and forced to do whatever he wanted and live with him. And those girls were all, um, they all met him when they were underage and they were trying to be singers. Yeah, that was that that, um, that cult mentality. It's from uh, it was it right. uh, surviving R. Kelly or is it was that called? Yeah, surviving R. Kelly and, was the the movie I think, and, like the Lifetime type movie that came out. The docu- docuseries, yeah. In Chicago, it's official now. Y'all can stop saying that these were adult women because he has now been proven that he has been messing with children. We already knew that because Aaliyah was fifteen years old yes. when they got married. Uh, quotation marks mm-hmm. you know but i'm like here we go it was more than just Aaliyah. it was more than just that 14 year old girl this was something that him and his roadies and his buddies have been doing for years which makes sense because sexual predators who go after children don't stop no. if they don't have a reason to it's a compulsion okay this is who he is your faves going to jail for the rest of his life he's never coming out yay and that's that it's done it's done <laughs> i just it was just it was in my spirit i was like when i saw that earlier this week i was just so excited i was just like finally now we have alongside all of the people's testimony and alongside what a lot of people have been saying for many many years yes it's it's, it's good we have the court it. also on our side it's good i'm glad to see it i'm happy to see it and hear it now, apparently the jury also acquitted Kelly's former business manager, Darrell McDavid, of conspiring to obstruct justice. So I'm not exactly excited about that. But because his the people in his circle knew I'm only honestly, uh, I get kind of creeped out when I see like people like looking at his ex-wife and like her thirst traps mm-hmm. on like TikTok because I'm like, I, she she had to have known. This oh. was too much in his regular life. Oh, yeah. A lot of people had to have known. This was going on. Right. And so I'm wondering if we're going to get more information about that. If he's going to try and make some deals, uh, rat some people out. Because, you know. I'm fighting for my life. Yep. He'll, you know, <laughs> drain the swamp. I want to know what people in hip hop and R&B 
knew what you were doing and who joined in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Three of the six counts he was convicted for uh, last week carry a minimum of 10 years in prison. So we're talking about at least another 10, like 30 years added to his sentence. (sighs) I mean, and then like they found that there were images from these like sex type party things on the road. And Mm. some of the people who were there were underage. So this was them making and sharing child uh, images U.S. Attorney John R. Losh Jr. Um, said that prosecutors respect the jury's decision to find Kelly's uh, co-defendants not guilty on several counts, but emphasized that he is finally still being held accountable for sexually abusing young girls. Um, the issue was, it, I guess he said that it, certain aspects of the charges in the trial made it difficult to obtain evidence uh, convictions for all the charged people. But it's clear that justice has been served by the guilty verdict's return today. Um, this it is it's just, it's a reckoning. It's... Mm-hmm. Mwah. <laughs> Finally. So. Oh, goodness. Now we can actually positively say, if you support R. Kelly, you are supporting somebody who is making music about actually harming children. And I don't think you could call yourself an ally to children if you still listen to that music because as far as i'm concerned i don't want to hear somebody thinking about bumping and grinding with children Mm, creepy everything's ruined it's all ruined yes that's how i feel it's completely ruined (laughs) oh goodness i'm good that was that was my like i said it's bad but it's good yeah yeah it's great it's fantastic (laughs) but yeah it's, it's still bad Okay, well, uh, this week, what I have for you, uh, this this might sound a little familiar because I'm pretty sure you covered a case about this mm-hmm. type of person. Okay. Um, so, in Texas, an, anesthesi- an anesthesiologist has been arrested on allegations of purposely tampering with IV bags. <gasps> oh, I heard about this guy. Okay. Now, doesn't, oh. he, doesn't he sound familiar to somebody else oh, we talked yeah, about? Yeah. Uh, the, the Charles Collins. Actually, uh, Philip DeFranco was talking about this on his news show, and I commented, and I was like, he's given me Charles Collins vibes, who As, was active in PA in New Jersey. Yes. Like, I wrote that, I was like, in the comments, I was like, uh, everybody who had a, a anything complication, and he was your anesthesiologist, you need to have them look into that. Yes, I, I read it. I, never, I read the title, and I was like, oh, wait a second. <laughs> yup. I was like, ooh, we have to. We went into depth with Cullen. Yes. Okay, so this guy's name is Ronaldo Rivera Ortiz Jr., and he's, he's being charged for um, allegedly ejecting nerve-blocking agents and other drugs into patients' IVs, uh, leading to... Ah, oh, see, I, you got more details than I heard from uh, when it first happened. Ah, uh, yeah. Because yeah. there was one lady who was just, like, she took an IV bag home for, like, fluids. Mm-hmm. I guess it was, like, someone who worked there. Yeah. And, like, freaked out, like, like had a uh, cardiac moment at home. Yep. Yep. Um, that happened, and also... One of his co-workers died at the surgical center. What? Of this. Yes. So a co-worker was having a surgery there and got one of the tainted bags? Yep. That's what I'm getting from this. And um, so the thing with these people is, like, some of them are, like, just straight up evil. But some of them are, like, they just want to be a hero. 
And so they want to be there when you code and then be the person to bring you back. Yeah. And sometimes they fail because they maybe they make it too strong or whatever. But yeah. Um, yeah, they don't have the exact science down. Um, right. Yeah. But his co-worker, she was a 55-year-old a woman and mm. she died immediately after using an IV bag taken from the surgical center. Whoa. Uh, yeah. And uh you know and all, they did an op- autopsy of course and they found that she died from a lethal dose of a nerve blocking agent often used during the administration of anesthesia. Um and yeah. Why do they need that? I don't I don't know. Huh. It's just, I'm just kind of I like it's just a science thing. I'll add to my roommate later. She <laughs> worked in nursing. For it's nerve, just that um, I guess nerve blocking like, when they put you under, they want you to like definitely not feel anything while you're under, so you don't wake up from the the pain or the shock and stuff. I gotta tell you, it like when I had surgery, it was so I've never went out so fast. So I don't know what they do, <laughs> but it was like seconds, and then I was being like shook wake pretty much oh damn uh it's because they had to lift me from the operating table to put me on the bed uh and i was like why are y'all jostling me <laughs> fuck, leave me alone get off of me and try to sleep and then i was like ow and they were like yeah surgery hurts i'll get you your medicine soon <laughs> um what i was complaining about was that i'd been on my back for four hours and so my boobs hurt oh. <laughs> listen us ladies who are chesty don't lay flat on our backs ever so it did not feel good. <laughs> oh my god! Um, yeah, that's what I was complaining about. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, surgery is scary though, and I'm, honestly, it's just frightening that you know we have these people within our um, community who are are playing real cavalier with people's lives because they want to be there when the person gets revived. Mm-hmm. I saw um, a pair, a family, talk about how. Um, their son was like healthy, like a hundred percent healthy. This was like a routine, like surgery. Right. And then, like an hour later, the doctor's like, "So there's a fifty-fifty chance your kid's gonna die." What the fuck? Oh. And they were like, "Wait, excuse me, how did this happen?" Yeah, I don't even know if the kid survived, but I think he might uh-huh. have. Oh. But still, that's so scary. Yeah. Okay. So there's 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 stuff more. <laughs> oh no. So. Okay, so the way they went into like finding out, you know, how who that who it was had, him, yeah. So workers at the surgical center, they were able to single out like ten additional instances of like where patients experience like cardiac stuff and like. Good on them for checking because yeah. Pennsylvania was not. Yeah. Do you remember how Pennsylvania was like, man, this is really weird that this keeps happening. <laughs> yeah, well, this is really another nurses, hospital. though. <laughs> oh my god. And so good on you, Texas. Yeah, and it's just like like you said with that little boy. It's just like when they were going in for surgeries, it was just like not big surgeries. So why the heck would they have cardiac problems at this point? Mm-hmm. So um, they surveillance Scary. videos. Yeah, they had uh, they, they they have surveillance videos on several different occasions of Ortiz doing this to um, to the IV bags and mm. tampering with them. Um, it says in one instance, Ortiz was captured placing in a single IV bag inside of a stainless steel bag warmer, scanning the hallway, and then click quickly walking away. 
and just one hour later, a 56-year-old woman suffered a cardiac emergency during a cosmetic surgery after the bag, after a bag from the warmer was used during her procedures. Her procedure. Um, but yeah, th- like there's so many, they have so many other instances of like this happening and like they have them on camera and stuff. It's just like, wow, dude. And that's what's wild. Cause like in some of the other cases that I've looked at here, we're talking about, I mean, what was her name? Um, Jane Tapon. That was like literally like the 1700s. <laughs> there was, you know, and they still figured it out after a while, but like no cameras. Yeah. Charles Cullen, the 90s, there aren't really standardized cameras all over every hospital. 2022, though, <laughs> every inch of a hospital is covered in a camera because there's other situations. People have mental health breaks, uh, you know, and it, patients run away they do it because sometimes people try and steal kids like how you thought you were gonna get away with that now is absolutely crazy yeah um he says that um his co-workers at the at their surgery center were trying to crucify him <laughs> well when i heard he, that he's just like they like brought him in and then they, he just like walked out <laughs> so did they act have they properly detained him now uh yeah he's yeah he's um he, okay, yeah, like so, the first couple days they didn't detain him. They were like, just don't do anything. I, I know he's being charged if they're convicting him. Uh, he says he faces a maximum sentence of life in prison, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it depends on how many people died. Yeah. Uh, he, I don't know. They got 10. Like, but life is generally like, like 50, 25 60. to 30 years it depends in, on. in prison terms. Yeah, true. So if he gets life for each of them, that's real, real life. Yeah. But yeah, it's funny thing is, well, of course you'll know this, but he went on vacation at one point, and guess what happened? Nobody got sick. <laughs> Nobody got hurt. Nobody had any cardiac emergencies. Nothing like that. And then when he comes back, oh, it all starts up again. Isn't that a coincidence? Yeah. Oh uh, God, but yeah, that's um, that's what I got. <laughs> yeah, that's that. Mm-hmm. Well, last week I did my best to cover Joseph James D'Angelo's. Life as a killer and a father and how the two kind of intertwined. But this week we're going to discuss mainly like the investigation and what it took to put him in prison. And there is going to be some mention of some of the cases, like a little bit of an overlap, but because they had some significance to moments in the investigation. So they'll be bringing them up again. Okay. Now, as far as the Vasilia Ransacker case, it starts at about 1974. And like we spoke about last week, these are really bizarre burglaries. Um, he's hitting over 120 homes in a year and a half, but a year and a half, two years. Um, they started very aggressively and then they abruptly stopped December, 1975. And the East area rapist begins six months later in Sacramento. Um, they really wasn't much they did with the Visalia ransacker because he was an annoyance. It was weird, um, you know, ripping up people's stuff, breaking, you know, just destroying the house and then leaving. It was These were annoyances. Uh, people had to clean up when he left, but he never stole anything of value. So there wasn't a whole lot they could do other than, you know, try and pop people around and hope to see catch him, you know. Mm-hmm. But with things starting in Sacramento, that's a whole different monster. Um for the media and the civilians, it definitely seems like there's no connection between the two, but there are definite similarities. Like the ransacker was strange and terrifying 
you know, those four or five robberies a night. One time he even broke into 12 different houses in one evening. Um, and it was the same four residential areas. He was stealing people's wedding rings. Uh, now I see that and they're like sentimental items. I'm like a wedding ring is a physical. That's money. Mm-hmm. Some people's wedding rings are very expensive, oh, yes. but they always mark those as sentimental items. What's weird is the photographs of, of women. And um, for some reason, he always finds and uses hand lotion. And I think you probably understand why. Um, when he found pictures of women with their children or their husbands, he'd rip them up. And I think that's a break in the fantasy for him. If he found some like he didn't like, like clothes, he'd like pour orange juice onto it. Oh my God. Um, and to point out how he hadn't like robbed them of their important valuables, he'd stack them on the bed. Mm, that's creepy. <laughs> So, yeah, people, like, come home and, like, um, they just see, like, a safe on the bed. Yeah. A stack of money on their bed and the rest of the house is ransacked. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Him go, I could have robbed you blind, but I didn't. Just some property theft, stealing a piggy bank, some blue chip stamps, one earring out of a set. He would unplug people's electronics and radios. Just being annoying. Um, but the investigators do pick up very early on that there's a sexual element to the ransacker cases. Um, probably not something people who are, aren't into true crime would understand, um, especially not back when it was just getting coverage. But as we talked about last week, he always went through the women's underwear and he never stole any of them, but he planted them around the house. And one time he put a woman's underwear in her baby's crib. Um, another time he took the man's underwear and he placed them in a straight line Going from the master bedroom down the hallway to a bathroom. And he always found lube or lotions or things that could be used for masturbation. Oh. And it, it seems like he was using it, but he never left any DNA behind. So I'll let you decide what you want to do with that information. I don't know what I want to do with that information. <laughs> it was destructive, but not the worst thing that was happening in the world at the time. But like most of these cases we cover, it's only a matter of time until things escalate. And that escalation happens with Claude Snelling, the journalism professor at the College of Sequoias. That was September 11th, 1975, when he grabs Claude's teenage daughter out of her bedroom at 2 a.m. And um, from what she said, he just put his hand over her mouth and put a knife to her neck and said, you're coming with me. Don't scream or I'll stab you. And as he's dragging her out of the house, she's struggling against him. He pulls out a gun and he's like, don't scream or I'll shoot you. And this time she complies and walks out the back door of her home. But her father hears the commotion and he bolts out of bed. He runs onto the porch and he's just like, what are you doing? Where are you taking my daughter? And Joseph shoots Claude. The first bullet hits him um, square in the chest and it spins him around. And the second bullet hits his left side, going through his arm into his heart and both of his lungs. Um, his wife is able to help him stumble into the house uh, as she calls 911 but within minutes he is dead Um, Joseph in his great moment of smartness tosses the teen girl to the ground kicks her in the face three times um, and then runs off she describes him to the police as a white man 5 foot 10 angry eyes 
Um, the handgun he uses in this situation is a Moroku 38 that had been stolen from a ransacked property that was hit 10 days earlier. And when the police pull all the calls around the house, Claude Snelling had reported a man looking into the windows of his house, uh, a man looking at his daughter before the attack. And that night, Claude had chased the man away from his house, but in the darkness. So Joseph had been casing this house, but not doing a good job hiding it. I guess he just decided, well, I can't break in and, and, and rape her, so I'm a stealer. Um, with that, the police are on high alert. Every cop is out the following evening. Um, they spent time looking at one house that was on West Queek Avenue because it had been hit three separate times by the ransacker. Um, on December 10th, Detective Bill McGowan was at this house when it sh- when the ransacker shows up again to do a fourth hit. Now, he's surprised, but uh, like Joseph is surprised, but he quickly jumps over the fence and the detective follows him. And when McGowan fires a warning shot, he puts his hands up and in a very high pitched voice is like, oh, my God, don't hurt me. See, my hands are up. But the problem was one hand was up and it was the dark. And with his other hand, he pulls his gun out and he shoots at the detective. He doesn't actually hit the detective. He hits the detective's uh, flashlight and the flashlight kind of explodes into like light, uh, glass and plastic and kind of hits him in the face. And so for a moment, he's kind of temporarily blinded and he like stumbles and falls down. Um, And this, of course, gives Joseph the chance to get away. But just the, the audacity, right, to go back to a house you've already burglarized three times just to keep messing with these people it's like that when we were talking about it last week when he was still making phone calls oh yeah they actually there's way more phone calls on the police side but we're gonna talk about that soon too that's wild so on january 9th 1976 the salia police take a trip to park center which is the lapd headquarters in downtown la um they were very much like why haven't we found this guy we have literally all these cops on this this is weird. So the LAPD is like, how about this? We're going to put Bill McGowan under hypnosis, see if he can remember anything else. Because um, they're like, as far as they're concerned, he's the only person who really, outside of uh, Claude Snelling's daughter, to see Joseph and live to tell, you know, mm-hmm. to see him and live to tell the tale. Yeah. So, and I think they don't want to put the teen victim through this again because she literally had to watch her father die. Now, under hypnosis, McGowan tells the police that he had a baby face. It was round and soft looking, no hair on his face at all. And that was very consistent with reports of the people who saw someone looking in their window. The police actually are like, does he ever go outside because he's so pale? (laughs) Like, he can't be a native to Visalia because people from this region are outside. And we have the tans to prove that. (laughs) So the police go back over the hundreds and hundreds of Prowler, Prowler and Peep and Tom calls from girls and young women that go back to 1973. And if you remember from last week, 73 is when he graduated from college. So he started this as soon as he no longer had to deal with studying for school. The police contact every eyewitness, show everybody this sketch, and they do get some new details. But the problem here is, um, and if you look at the sketches, I know you're not Brian, but if someone's listening and you just pull up 
Joseph James D'Angelo's Wikipedia page, you're going to see like nine different sketches. And the first one doesn't look like him. And all I can think in this situation is that he's chubby right now. He had, maybe he hasn't been working out as much because it does look like a chunky version of Joseph D'Angelo. Um, also an interesting detail here, right? The high pitched voice, because we know later on in the East area rapist case, he's talking in a deep voice kind of through his teeth like mm-hmm. that. So it's interesting what the police believe happened with this is that, um, sometimes women would hear two voices and that he was trying to make it seem like this was a group thing, that this was like a team of robbers. Oh, so, and so that's why he had two voices. Oh, I get that. So if he gets caught, he can be like, no, no, it was the other guy who's the main guy. It's not just me. Yeah. Oh. He's planning everything. Um, now, as Sacramento begins dealing with the ECR rapist, the Saudi PD do send information to them about the fact that their attacks kind of seem similar. The trashing the house, the, the stealing worthless trinkets and personal jewelry that can't be sold, um, and that similar tools are being used. But of course, because burglarizing and raping are two very different crimes that generally have different pathologies, it's overlooked um, at this time in history. Um, Sacramento's like, there's just too many differences. We're getting shoe impressions here. Your guy never left any evidence we're getting evidence this he's he's making mistakes um but like i think this situation with that composite sketch that the ransacker picture is him at a higher weight and the the sketches that come out of the east area rapist he looks slender i think that was also a big detail and i'm like that throws me for a loop because generally attackers will like change their hair color Uh, maybe they wear glasses maybe they wear a hat you can get away with it if you just lose weight. Of course, if you're very thin already, I suppose you have to add I weight? I guess, or grow a beard or something. Mm-hmm. Well, so 1978 in July, the PD tell the press that they believe that the East Area Rapist and the Vasalia Ransacker are the same guy. And the Sacramento sheriffs are pissed off. They released their own statement saying that they are disappointed in the newspaper and the other police department and say that the other police department is just desperate. Even now, there's still disagreements on whether they were the same people. A man by the name of Ken Clark, Sacramento's lead investigator in the more recent um, cases, believed they were the same and so do the FBI. Um, But the lead investigator in uh, Contra Costa County did not. Now, these attacks as the East Area Rapists begin on June 18th, 1976. It's Friday night. And Rancho Cordova at 4 a.m. His victim's 23 years old and she just moved back into her dad's house on 2600 block of Paseo Drive. They've been receiving, receiving strange calls for weeks and she definitely felt really uncomfortable and she wanted to believe they were a prank like the police said. Mm-hmm. But on the night of the attack, her dad was out of town and she was all alone. She woke up at 4 a.m. and her light was on and a man was sitting in the doorway with a ski mask on, tapping the doorframe with a knife. He had no pants on. She told the police later he had a very slim athletic build. He yanked her bedding off of her and was like, if you make a move or sound, I'll stick this knife into you. I want to fuck you. Take it off. A direct quote. Yep. Um, Unlike the soft high pitched voice we get in Vasalia, this is hoarse and speaking through clenched teeth. 
He tied her up, assaulted her, and when it was done, he asked if she had any money. When she tried to reply like that she didn't, he yelled at her to shut up. He gagged her. He went hunting through the house. And at one point, she thought she heard two people talking. And then there was silence. She wriggles out of her uh, shoestrings that he has tied her up with and calls the police. The police treat this like a sexual assault case. She's alert and she's able to tell them the knife is about three or four inches long. She told them the mask seemed homemade from some strange white, like coarse material. He wore gloves the entire time. The police found a balled up towel with baby oil. Assuming that he prepared himself so that when he woke her up, he was erect and she would see it. Um, He had used a special tool to slip a deadlock so he didn't have to force it open. And uh, when they finished processing the scene, they discovered that he stole $15 and two packs of Winston cigarettes. The police are like, well, the reason why he's there is the rape, not the stealing. So they collect everything in the house that they can that they think might have his DNA on it to catalog. Um, it's it's going to be years before we have workable DNA evidence, but they keep it anyway. After the attack, Joseph calls her six times. He mainly calling, breathing, and then hanging up. And eventually, his victim gets some peace. They seem to stop. And then a year later, coincidentally, when her rape kit analysis came back and they determined that um, he has a rare, it's not an illness. It's just like a, a rare quality. Um, I don't know if people know this, but uh, generally your DNA in all forms can also, I think, tell your, like, specifically for men, your semen can tell your blood type. His didn't. And there's been another serial killer that also had the same condition, which is kind of odd. Um, but this is a problem because now that they, they can't get his, they can't get his blood type from it. Blood type can eliminate a bunch of people potentially as uh, potential rapists. So, um, but the last time that Joseph calls her is almost a year later in December. And he says, Merry Christmas. It's me again. So gross. Oh, that's so gross. Yeah. The first four rapes were handled with care. The police did the due diligence. But essentially, Joseph knew what they were looking for. So he specifically moved in a way and didn't leave much of any physical evidence behind. However, the fifth rape was a woman named Jane Carson, and it was a pivotal moment in this case. Um, I didn't expand on this because I did want to give Jane's case some uh, some extra time. So Jane Carson is a 30-year-old nursing student when she's attacked on October 5th, 1976. She's with her three-year-old son, and her husband just leaves for work. It's like 6.30 in the morning. Her and the baby are just laying together, you know, doing cute baby things. And Jane hears the door open and she assumes it's probably her husband. Maybe he met, forgot something, ran back. And she just hears kind of the, you know, bump, bump, bump of someone walking in the house. It's Joseph. And he blinds her with a flashlight and he has a butcher knife. He immediately cuts her with the blade on her chest. And he's like, if you say anything, I'll kill you. I just want money. So he gags and ties up both Jane and her toddler and then goes about the house just rustling everything, looking for everything. Eventually, he comes back and he unties just her legs. Um, now, he during this like moment where he kept going around the house, he kept coming back. like He would move things and she would hear stuff and then he would come back in the room and check on her. At one point during one of those checks, she 
kind of feels for her son and he's not there. And so she's freaking out. Um, and so even though she realizes that it looks like he might as- he's going to assault her, she does not care at all. She said she told the police she was more focused on the fact that she didn't know where her baby yeah, was. Of course. And she couldn't hear it. Um, he spends the entire assault taunting her while she's upset about the baby, not letting her know that her son is just on the floor next to the bed. Um, she told the police, like I said, she she was just so focused on that. Um, but the assault goes on for two hours. Eventually, um, he leaves. She tears off her bindings and sees that her son is safe and picks up her son and runs next door to the police. An officer arrives at her home who will become important to this case in a lot of different ways. And her name is Carol Daly. Carol Daly was one of the first women detectives in Sacramento, and she was invaluable in this case against the East Area Rapists. Now, Carol originally worked as a secretary for the county coroner in 1968, and then until her husband showed her a job listing, because the county was desperate for women deputies. And back in the 60s, being a woman in a police department was kind of its own classification. And they had a separate testing process. It was all very weird. But she's just like, listen, I'm going to do it. Because, you know, if I fail, then nothing bad happens. But if I pass, I get a 100% pay raise. Only 35 women even responded to the job posting. 12 of them passed and six were hired to join the two women who were already working for the Sacramento Police Department. Carol was one of those six. Um, and, and when I talk about this, it's like the era where lady cops wore skirts still and kept guns in their oh purses and actually carried purses to crime oh scenes. God. Yes. Now the police have eight women working for them, but they don't exactly know what to do with them because generally male deputies do stints working in prison or they do certain patrols until they're ready to move up. Carol does everything asked of her, and slowly she starts moving up in the department. She's very focused. She earns the respect of a lot of people. And her life changed in 1976 when she's the one who responds to Jane Carson. Um, The police realize that they have a serial predator. And by the seventh and eighth rape, they realize they need to make a task force. And they're like, well, Carol has to be a part of this task force. She's the only woman. But so far, Carol's talked to all of the rape victims. And they're comfortable talking to her. She was a natural interviewing people, putting them at ease. And it becomes a thing where whenever a new call comes in, the patrolling deputies who respond to the rape call Carol. She comes to the scene and she takes the women to the hospital herself for their exam. She interviews them during the long periods of time waiting in the hospital. And this might seem callous to some people, but getting those details when they're fresh in the person's mind is vital. And ultimately, Carol will interview 36 of the East Area Rapist victims that happen in her jurisdiction. The others happen outside of the Sacramento County. Um, There was a situation when there was a woman who kept kind of going back and forth between crying and laughing until Carol came in the room. And then she was like, let's talk. They knew that she would be there to, she she was there to listen. And these interviews are really difficult because some of these women have husbands. And so now you have to ask really delicate questions like, when's the last time you had sex with your husband? Um, Did you do any sort of douching or cleaning 
between then and the time that this person assaulted you? How did he touch you? They're very hard questions to answer. But through these long interviews, they establish his M.O. And Carol worked on this case almost exclusively for two years. But she says she thought about it for 42 and kept in contact with many of the victims. And when they caught D'Angelo, the police called her first. And she said, don't let them learn about it in the news. We got to call them ourselves. And he went, all right, you start making calls. She was the first person to become undersheriff in Sacramento before she retired in 2001. And her work on the East Area Rapist Task Force helped in standardizing rape kits across the state. She informed trauma centers and hospitals of the kind of evidence that was needed to collect that would actually help get convictions. She's also the first person to realize that the East Area Rapist is calling people before they are attacking. And afterward, this gives a multi-layered understanding of the kind of predator he is. He's getting off to scaring people. And like he'd done with the four prior victims, Jane Carson was called many times beforehand. She even told the police that the phantom caller had threatened to kill her husband. But they said these have to be prank calls. In reality, Joseph is causing, calling a figure out when the people who live there are home. And when he leaves... The next rape happens four days later. This is the first time that the newspapers use the term serial rapist. And it begins the panic in Rancho Cordova. The Sacramento County Police create a task force led by Lieutenant Ray Root. And Ray taps Carol immediately. She's the only one who can get these people to talk. The task force stations dozens of officers around Rancho Cordova. So that if a rape is called in, they can get there within minutes. Ten days later, on October 18th, there's a rape in the AM. And that afternoon, the police publicly announced that they are searching for, officially titled, the East Area Rapist and offering a $2,500 reward for information to his capture. That night, almost to spite them, he attacks another woman in the neighborhood. They were even stationed a block away from the woman's house. They do not catch him. They don't even get wind of him. It's like he is poofing in the air when he's finished. Now, the next moment in the case comes November 10th, 1976, at about 7.30 p.m. There's a teenage girl, and she's in the house alone for about 15 minutes when Joe breaks in. She was waiting for her boyfriend to pick her up, and her parents had just left. Joe drags her out of the house and into the canals back behind her home, ties her up, and then goes back to the house and stages it to look like she left on her own, like he didn't break in. He has never done this before. And they're worried. Is this a sign that he's escalating, becoming more sophisticated? The task force is like, well, we're definitely not dealing with your garden variety rapist. He is showing serious levels of premeditation on one side, but then on the other, he's completely reckless. People in the community have seen him running away. So the task force creates a broad profile. They think he graduated from high school in the late 60s or early 70s. He has ties to the military and may have ties to the police that he either was a cop or wants to be one. And this profile is 100% accurate. We know that from last week. But the only problem is there's virtually two generations of men who were in the military. Okay. World War II. But there's a whole generation of young guys who had just been in Vietnam. Thousands and thousands of men fit the description of being a medium white built 
to like either lean to chubby white guy with the palest skin imaginable somewhere between 5'7 and 5'10 was in Vietnam and is a cop. That's still too many people. It's not enough. But the task force goes back to the basics. They start going through like 30,000 cases across all of California history looking for any rapist who may have just gotten out of prison and fits the description. It leads to nothing, and the $2,500 reward brings no answers. So from December of 1976 to February 77, five more women are raped. And the community is scared. Cops are stationed not just around homes, but in them. Families who don't have cops in their homes are sleeping in shifts, sitting up with guns trained on the doors. Thousands of guns are sold in this gap. Deadbolts go on back order. People who can't get deadbolts are taking alternative measures like putting dowling rods in the gap between the sliding door on the floor or in between the window so it can't be pulled up or down. One family told the Sacramento Bee that they put a tambourine on every window and door so they could hear if somebody opened it. Um, And this level of, I think, alertness does bring in some information. February 17th, 1977, 18-year-old Rodney Miller hears a prowler and inspects and sees a man in the bushes between him and his neighbor's house. Rodney lives in the Ripon area. Ripon? It's outside of Sacramento, and it has not been hit with a rape yet. Rodney looks at the man in the bushes and is like, you gonna stay there? And chases him. This man runs top speed across the street, but stops in his neighbor's front yard and waits to see if Rodney's going to chase him again. The teenager just bolts after him and manages to grab Joseph's, Joseph's leg as he's going over a fence and makes him fall down. As Rodney begins to climb the fence, Joe pulls his gun and shoots Rodney in the stomach. And of course, Rodney falls back onto his neighbor's lawn. The neighbors hear the gunshot and they call the police. He gets away. But Rodney has a very clear picture. He was leaning over that fence, staring right at that, right at the guy. So he gets a information to the police as soon as he can. Obviously, they had to deal with the whole gut shot mm-hmm. first. But this is the best police sketch we have of him. And honestly, when I looked at his picture, like his little police picture, you know, after you get accepted into right. the academy... Or like into the the department, they take a cute little picture of you. It looks just like that, just slightly off. And one of my favorite things about Rodney, outside of him just being a badass for an eighteen year old, is that his family still owns that house, and he is just as proud of himself now as he is back then. And he literally was just like, you know what? No rapes happened here, so I guess I did good, huh? Yes. And he's right. It spooked Joe enough that he leaves Ripon alone. Nice. He's like, uh-uh, they they on they doing too much <laughs> over there. <laughs> I'm definitely gonna die over there. <laughs> oh. But the task force now has concrete proof of how he's staking out homes because that bush that Rodney saw him mm-hmm. in looked like it was almost hollowed out. Like, he had to have been there for oh. days just and watching. waiting and just, oh. Mm-hmm. That police sketch gets released on March 18th. Joseph repeatedly calls the house of a young girl in Arcade Arden 
pretending to be a roofer and asking to talk to her parents. And finally, the girl gets annoyed and she's just like, they're not coming back until next week. Leave me alone. And hangs up on him. Um, that afternoon, Joseph makes his first call to the Sacramento Sheriff's Department. The first of many calls. He just says, I'm the East Area Rapist and cackles and hangs up. He calls two more times that day, very quickly, in the same half hour. And it's just like, I'm the East Area Rapist. I have my next victim already stalked and you guys can't catch me. Mm. From April of 77 to November, he attacks 12 more women. His total is now 28. And the task force is doing all they can, but they don't have the most money to try and track these guys' movements. Joe's calls to the freak, uh, the police are so frequent now. He's calling future victims, but there's just not enough police to get stationed in every house. And these, like, 10 neighborhoods. And of course, some of them have to be false flags or people mm-hmm. pretending to be him, but they can't get to everybody who's getting these hang-up calls to see if he's already been to the house and might plan an attack. Because they believe sometimes he goes in and he fixes things to help him get back in later. Oh, uh, so he breaks in first and then stuck. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then he leaves it so he yeah, can get it even easier yeah, later. Gross. Sacramento 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 County community members are like y'all aren't doing enough and they hold a series of meetings to discuss what to do the solution at one of those early meetings is now there are a hundred men from the county who are driving around every night looking for him on top of the police there's another meeting that happens at a local school and detective Carol Daly is there giving self-defense tips to women and girls who could be potential victims At that meeting, a man comes forward and calls other men cowards for letting another man get away with raping your wife next to you. That man eventually becomes a victim. Um, Joseph will break into that man's house, tie him up, and rape his wife next to him. This uh, detective Carol alerts her peers that the rapist is part of this community. He's attending these meetings to learn what we're doing to try to combat him, which makes sense because these meetings are where those guys are saying like, hey, we're going to do this thing and these people are going to go to this area. They're planning the way that they drive around every night. And so, of course, he knows. So he knows how to avoid them. Late autumn, he starts calling the police precinct and he taunts Carol. On December 2nd, he calls and says, you're never going to catch me, you dumb fuckers. I'm the East Area Rapist. I'm going to fuck again tonight. Be careful. And his next attack happens a few hours later. Also in December, that horrible poem we read last week comes out. We don't need to read. He calls calls the woman and says, Merry Christmas, it's me again. He even calls the task force phone line. And he's just like, you know what? I'll help you out. I'm going to... I'm going to attack somebody on Watt Avenue tonight. And the gall of this guy, it isn't a wild goose chase. He actually shows up on Watt Avenue to try and break in while the police are there. But uh, they end up chasing him away from the area. The police give the first woman a tape recorder and they're like, listen, be ready. He might call. We can get his voice. We can put it out on the paper, you know, on TV. Jane's January 2nd, he calls her again. They get their first taped call and release it to the media. The call is him saying over and over again that he's going to kill her and he calls her a whore and a bitch multiple times. 
Um, four days later, he calls the police again, but not to the tip line. This time he calls the contact counseling services. He sounds like he's struggling with something. And he tells the person on the phone, I have a problem. I need help. I don't want to do this anymore. Now, the counselor, of course, heard the voice of the East Area Rapist. And so she thinks that's the guy. So she kind of on the, the, the low tip alerts the police and they're like, we're coming. Um, they have a couple minute conversation. And as people are arriving and trying to listen in, uh, Joseph says, I believe you're tracking this call. Oh. And he hangs up. He goes back to taunting the police and past and future victims. On February 2nd, 1978, he kills again. These are the Maggiores, the couple that were just out walking Thank their you. dog. And uh, Brian Maggiore, who was in the military, kind of catches him skulking around and chases him. And both Brian and Katie are shot. Just more proof again that he panics sometimes and just shoots people. The police find shoelaces at the scene, his favorite kind of rope. And they deduce that just like with Rodney, he was interrupted and he killed out of fear. They also find uh, military shoe footprints, which match other footprints found at different scenes. And the community freaks out because they're like, crap, now he's not just raping people, he's killing them. The task force tells the press that women who live alone or happen to sometimes be alone in first story ranch houses near Ranch or Cordova are at risk. And after the police, like, after that article comes out in the papers, the attacks stop in Rancho mm. Cordova. Jesus. Which is bad because he makes his move a little north. The community of Northeast Modesto and Stanislaus County is not prepared for an attack on June 5th, 1978. He ties up the husband, rapes the wife with the husband and child in earshot, stacks plates on top of the husband as a sound trigger. He attacks her for 45 oh minutes and then disappears into the night. On July 6th, he attacks another woman, but this time in Davis, California. She's his 37th victim, and throughout the entire attack, he says over and over again, I hate you, Bonnie. I hate you, Bonnie. Almost like he's not present in the moment. The task force is like, who the hell is Bonnie? They're like, is she a past victim? A future victim? Someone he desires? Of course, it's decades before they learn exactly who right. she is. Now, December 2nd of 1978, he shifts his hunting grounds 130 miles from the previous attack to San Jose. Police all over the state now know what it means when there's a rape and the house has been trashed. That's the East Area Rapist, and San Jose braces for chaos. Um, what we know is that at this time, Joe and Sharon are sh traveling. They're looking for a place to, to find a home. So it's plausible that they were just in the region looking for houses because it's the only attack that's in that area for now. He uses this time to terrorize a couple. When the husband tries to defend his wife, Joe nearly shatters the guy's kneecap, hitting him so hard that he can't get out of the bed. Um, the entire time he's raping this woman, he's threatening both her and her husband. He keeps the knife out. When he's done, he leaves them tied up. They hear him pacing and crying outside of their bedroom in the next room. Um, he only actually stops when the man knocked the dishes off of his back. Um, and then Joe hits the man in the head with one of his weapons. Um, still, though, the husband doesn't stay down. And when he moves again and knocks over the plates again, this time Joe ties him up again and puts the plates on him. 
cries some more, and then leaves. Why don't you put the police? <laughs> Rightly so. The police are worried he's having some kind of psychological yeah, break. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I was like, why would you put the police back on if you're just going to leave anyway? I, I don't know. Maybe to like There's slow him down. Okay, whatever. I know. And obviously this guy has shown that like he doesn't care about your little yeah. plate trigger. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to keep doing what he wants and trying to help his oh, wife. God. But um. Yeah, no, they're worried he's having some kind of psychological break. What we do know outside of this, what we talked about last week, is that there's trouble in the D'Angelo house. Joe and Sharon are sleeping in different bedrooms. They are not having a good marital relationship. The polite, the police are right that this is an escalation and that there's going to be a further escalation, but they don't know how or when. And by the end of 1978, there are now 80 detectives on the East Area Rapist Task Force across multiple counties, and there have been 40 rapes. Lieutenant Ray Root isn't sure what to do. They followed the book when it comes to policing and trying to catch this guy. So one of the detectives, Richard Shelby, who was on the task force at one point, has an idea. Shelby is intense, and he recognized the serial nature of these crimes. And even though he'd been taken off the case at this point, he's not letting it go. Shelby's like, listen, we need to attack him in the press. Attack his manhood. See if he does something reckless. So the task force releases information about the East Area Rapist, specifically that he has a small, deformed penis, and they brand him as a coward in the news. Detective Shelby gets quoted in the press talking about this, and shortly after, Shelby's young son would come to detective, detective's bedroom, telling him that a man was looking through his windows. The young boy is so scared that he refused to sleep in his room alone until he was 13. Joseph just wanting to let Detective Shelby know, I know where you live, and I could hurt you if I wanted to. Detective Shelby doesn't want to tell his wife, Anne, that they were visited by the East Area Area Rapist. Now, we move into 1979. It brings more six more rapes in Sacramento, Alameda, and Contra Costa County. And then it goes silent for four months. The police force and the task force wonder, did he die? Is he been arrested? In prison? Moved to another city? Now what you and I know, and everyone who listened last week, is that this is when he gets caught stealing from that hardware store and kind of lays low while they're dealing with that. Now one of the most interesting details about this is that he wasn't going to lose his job over the stealing. He lost his job because his boss gave him six months of probation and he lost his cool. And he gets into this massive fight in October of 1979 and he tells his chief, Nick Willick, he threatens to kill him. And his boss is just like, you know what? I've had it with you. You're done. Joe is devastated. He's humiliated. He's embarrassed. And within weeks, Chief Willick wakes up and his daughter's in bed with him in the morning. And he's like, well, what happened? And she's like, there was a man in my window last night. He was flashing a light. So I came in here. Just Joe again, trying to threaten people in his real life who he feels are giving him problems, which is a weird thing to yeah. do when nobody knows it's you. <laughs> they don't know that it's the, this is the reason oh why. God. But um, after that explosion with his boss, four more rapes happen. Um, his youngest victim yet, she's 13. His last soul rape is October 1st, 1979. It is brutal. It's in Galetta, California. 
the task force isn't aware of what's about to come on the horizon. He is now solidly in the South and he's about to escalate to murder every time, which starts with Dr. John Offerman and his partner, Dr. Deborah Manning. They police find a size nine shoe in the dirt outside of the house and they match it to the scene in October. It's the same guy who committed the rape, but they aren't sure that the rape from October is the East area rapist yet. March 13th, 1980, we have Lyman and Charlene Smith who get bludgeoned to death in their home. They are tied with a special knot called a diamond knot. The house isn't ransacked for the first time. So the police focus on Lyman's business partner. All right, really not business partner, but just some of his business dealings. Lyman Smith is a well-known attorney in Santa Paula who makes very odd investments, sometimes offering get-rich schemes to his clients. And one of such investments with a land development company called GAP and the client was Joe Alsip. Police find Alsip's fingerprints on a glass inside the Smith home and they dig deeper and find that Alsip had lost a lot of money in investing in the land company while Lyman's returns were just fine. So of course Alsip is not happy. He has a motive. There's a fingerprint. They bring Alsip in for questioning he tells detectives he's been in the Smith's house before multiple times and he was there the night before the murders because they had a beer and talked business. Nonetheless, the DA pursues Alsip for the murders and it, he, they actually go through a pretty lengthy pretrial phase before a judge dismisses the case entirely. Joseph doesn't attack again for seven months. The police are like, did he, did he leave again? Is he, is he dead? August 21st, 1980 is the attack on Keith and Patrice Harrington. Um, they are found by Roger Harrington in Orange County. They had a dinner planned, but the couple's bodies are purple, meaning they've been there for days. This was a blitz attack while they were asleep, which was weird. And it was out of character, right? So um, he pulled the covers over the sleeping family's head and beat them both with a sprinkler from outside they find small parts of brass embedded in Patty's skull from the sprinkler after this the press name him the Night Stalker a seven months pass nothing happens until February 7th 1981 Manuela Witten's mom can't reach her and she's not at the hospital with her husband who had surgery Manuela's mom finds her badly raped beaten and half inside a sleeping bag the sleeping bag is weird but they learn later from her husband that she says when she has to sleep alone in the big bed she doesn't like it so she would sleep in the no in the sleeping bag when her husband wasn't at the house the police notice that there are bruises on her behind like he was punching her another escalation in the behavior he also tried to stage this one too by making it look like it was a robbery and taking the TV from the living room. But he leaves it like in the backyard near the fence. Line. So he, he didn't really care about the TV. So he, he still didn't take think nothing. It was a robbery. <laughs> nope. <sighs> the investigators aren't fooled though. They mark this as another night's Duckler attack. Six months later, there's another one in Galetta, California. The real estate agents show up to do an appraisal of a property and discover the bodies of Sherry Domingo and Gregory Sanchez. 
The overkill here is dramatic. There's blood nearly on every surface of the room. Um, Sherry was hit dozens of times. Police wonder if Gregory tried to fight back because he has a bullet wound in his face that goes through his cheek. Maybe he would have tried to, like, you know, linebacker mm-hmm. just slam into him. And that's, you know, and, and like he did, he panic shot and it went through his cheek but didn't actually kill him. They also notice that he's not leaving the bindings behind anymore. But they continue to, f- they find fibers in Sherry's wrists and ankles. He's trying to hide his tracks now, which is a, a shift in the case. Now things stop. And we know that that's because Joseph's working random jobs. They have their daughter, Misha. Like so many cases we've covered on this podcast, when the murder stop completely and the rape stop, the money stops too for the task force. Detective Carroll goes back to doing her good work for Sacramento, focusing on rape kit standardization and teaching hospitals what to do. But all the task force members, they can't keep all 80 of these people on. And a lot of them fade back into their regular jobs. But for Carol, she can't stop talking to the victims. And I already mentioned Richard Shelby is obsessed with this case. He stays obsessed for decades. For the community east of Sacramento, it has been seven years since an attack. And in Southern California is now five in May of 1986. People start to breathe a sigh of relief. And then the police find the bloody bruised body of Janelle Cruz in her Irvine home. She's only 18 years old. They find a size nine sneaker print on her bed and also outside the home. There is an instant moment of panic. Is it him? Is he back again? Are we about to go on another multi-year journey with this guy? Janelle's house, however, is in the perfect area. It's at the end of a cul-de-sac and there's a pedestrian access point that has a huge hedge and there's a park that leads there. So it's very plausible that her attacker could have parked way near the park entrance and just walked through there and hid near the hedge and watched. Um, the Arch County District Attorney Eric Hutchcraft makes a statement and it's like, listen, we know he's a peeper. We know he's a prowler and he likes to watch people. And we know that he was alone. They informed the public that this was, again, another murder by the original Night Stalker. Which they have to call the original Night Stalker because Richard Ramirez is also active in the city now. But in L.A. and the suburbs of L.A. The task forces aren't really reinstated, but they do compare old evidence to this. The new set of police are kind of reinvigorated and they want to continue the hunt. Investigators near Orange County reach out to other counties with their information and are like, can we go through your old cold cases? And they're like, I mean, sure. This takes years. But when they stumble upon the details of the East Area Rapist, a lot of people are convinced it's the same guy. The MO is identical. How he stalks the victims, how he calls to make sure they're home, how he ties them up. It's not perfect by any means, but it's enough to make people want to keep digging. When DNA finally becomes more standardized in the late 90s, investigators in Orange County take samples from Manuela Witten, the Harringtons, and Janelle Cruz and test them against each other. It's a match. In the next year, Ventura County PD and Santa Barbara PD do the same with their cases, and they decide to submit that information to the FBI newly created Combined DNA Index, or CODIS, Mm-hmm. which you've probably yes. heard about on TV shows. Through this, they think six homicides to the original Night Stalker. 
They know it's all one guy, but they don't know who the guy is. Now, the next break in this case comes in 2001. When investigators in Northern California working the East Area Rapist case decide to test a theory and they submit the DNA that they got from the rape scenes to Southern California police. 60 matches. Even more than they were originally aware of. On April 5th, 2001, the Sacramento Bee runs a story about E-A-R-O-N-S, East Area Rapist Original Night Stalker, and it's huge about the, the police making the connection. Now, the police aren't as excited about the presses, though, because DNA hasn't made its way all the way through the prison system yet. And there's this debate about the ethics of taking prisoners' DNA when they get pulled in. The state of California is like, listen, we'll give you, we'll give you this. We'll submit people on death row's DNA, but we're not going to submit every single person who comes through, uh, you know, local and, and state prison system. Orange County Sheriff Investigator Larry Poole gets quoted in the paper saying, we think he's probably in prison somewhere, but you know, who knows? He could be getting out tomorrow, next week, next year. Mm-hmm. They're very bitter. The following day, Joseph calls a previous victim and says, remember oh when we played? <clears throat> it's his final call, but now the police know for sure he's not in prison, so mm-hmm. they know they have to keep looking. Um, we insert crime writer Michelle McNamara. Now, she launched a true crime website called True Crime Diary in 2006, detailing a long-standing fascination with true crime because she was near a case when she was a child. She built a career for herself, and in 2013, she starts writing articles for different L.A. magazines. Between 2006 and 2013, Michelle has been interviewing people, victims from the East Area Rapist, Original Night Stalker. She is making connections in the police departments. In the article, she details information the public never knew about, conversations with the police, letting the the public know that they're still investigating. She learns things that they hadn't released as evidence. And in the article, she calls him Mm -hmm. the Golden State Killer, saying that they need one name, specifically something more memorable. The entire world is now invested in this case after Michelle releases this massive article. Paul Holes, the investigator for Contra Costa, said that Michelle was very persistent. But it seemed like she was trustworthy and she she was genuine. And so she they shared very sensitive information with her about the Golden State Killer. A few months later, she signs a book deal with Harper Collins to write a book based on her research. Her book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer, was two thirds of the way done when she died on April 21st, 2016. Um, she died from a drug overdose. Her true crime friends, Paul Haynes, Billy Jensen, and her widower, Patton Oswalt, would go on to finish the book two years later. It was released two months before Joseph James D'Angelo was caught. It was actually still on the New York Times bestseller list when he gets arrested. Um, I used that book as one of my sources for this week's podcast. And in a strange weirdness, um, I didn't know that Patton Oswalt and Michelle were married until after she died, but I knew she was um, as far as being a writer and a true crime writer. Um, I wanted... It's weird, like it's weird in my head because um, my mom died four months before Michelle did, and Patton Oswalt, um, I came across like him talking mm-hmm. about his grief publicly, 
um, and in his comedy. And it just kind of, it hit me real hard because I was only four months deep and still very, very hurt. Yeah. Um, I read a lot and watched a lot of what he had to say. And I, honestly, I wanted to quote some of the things that he said here, but um, grief is a bitch and um, <laughs> I can't. So, uh, uh, um, but Michelle McNamara had a major impact on this case. Um, she brought it out of the shadows and back into the spotlight. People don't like to give true crime content creators the credit, but the impact of those articles that came out in 2013 helped with the funding that was necessary for what was about to happen with this case. Michelle made those victims and those survivors real to people. And when people start to care, wallets start to open. And that's the, you know, the FBI gets involved. They release new composite sketches with this information as they talk to old victims again. They put out a new tip line. There's a $50,000 reward. And we have to roll back just a little bit. The mid-2010s bring the concept of familial DNA to the forefront of investigators' mind. It's been used in other states to successfully capture people, and they want to use it here. We got big sites like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. They've exploded. And Americans are obsessed with being able to find their 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 proper bloodline because so much of our country is yeah. mixed race at this point. Um, and it's it's groundbreaking because what used to cost hundreds upon hundreds of dollars and hundreds of hours of time, now it's just $129. And you can find out what's in your blood. Well, the police contact a smaller website called GED Match, um, and they ask for access to their database. And GED Match tells their users, from this day forward, this... Uh, database is going to be public to certain organizations and that you have a certain amount of time before you can remove your DNA if you want to. The police used one of, as they called it, the abandoned DNA samples from one of the rape murders and the website gives them roughly 10 to 20 people all connected through a set of great, great, great grandparents like back to like the 1700s and those match the 10 murders in California. So the DA's office is like, do it again. They get the same results. There is this moment of pure joy for the officers who have now been working on this case for decades, but it's still not enough. They have to begin creating a family tree and then potentially testing people they link to it or eliminating them in some form. This process takes months of tracking down. We're looking through newspapers, birth records, death records, obituaries, engagement announcements, wedding announcements to try and build this family tree. And from that point on, they now have to connect where all of these people were living while the attacks were active in California. And there's two of them. One of the folks is contacted and eliminated by a DNA test, leaving one man. Joseph James D'Angelo, now 17 years old, <laughs> 72 years old. Why well, say 17? 72. <laughs> the police begin stalking Joe's house and uh, also him. They just start following him. And when he's inside of a Hobby Lobby, they take a DNA swab of his door handle. And they also take some of the trash from outside of his house. 
at this point sharon is no longer living there uh the people living at the house are joseph his eldest daughter misha and her daughter who is 19 so there's uh dna markers to determine if someone is uh female or male so the the, other, the dna they didn't need is quickly eliminated the police don't bring him in right away though they wait a couple months as they build the case against him and on april 24th 2018 the sacramento sheriff's office arrests 72 years old joseph james d'angelo at his home in citrus heights the community is surprised to know that their friend and neighbor is a serial killer there was one guy, it was really funny. He was just like, I just learned about this case and was looking into it. And the guy <laughs> lived five blocks away from me. They charge him with eight counts of first degree murder with special circumstances. And then three weeks later on May 10th, the Santa Barbara County District Attorney's Office charges him with an additional four counts of first degree murder. They cannot charge him with any of the rapes or burglaries because the statute of limitations expired before California determined that there would be no statute of limitations on rape that happened in 2016 so because these cases and i mean it ended literally decades before that uh was passed in the state they cannot add them joseph's lawyer immediately tries to get the the dna situation with gd match thrown out they're like listen this company didn't disclose that private consumer data would be used in an investigation except they totally did and so they're like, nothing's getting thrown out. Bring, bring, bring your boy on in. We need to talk to him. Joseph's interrogation is weird. He acts confused. He keeps bringing up somebody named Jerry, saying things like, I didn't have the strength to push him out. He made me. He went with me. It was like in my head. I mean, he's a part of me. I didn't want to do those things. I pushed Jerry out and had a happy life. But I did all those things. I destroyed their lives. So now I've got to pay the price. The police aren't buying this, though. And uh, Bonnie clicks for them when they find his wedding announcement. The Bonnie that he talked about at the 37th rape. And then they talk to Jim Huddle, his brother-in-law. And Jim Huddle tells the police that Joe talked to him about how Bonnie was his one true love. That's before he married his sister, Shannon. Sharon. So D'Angelo gets arraigned, Sacramento, August 23rd, 2018. And then the April 10th, 2019 court proceeding, prosecutors announced they intend to seek the death penalty. Um, judge rules that cameras will be allowed inside the courtroom during the hearing, during the trials. Um, on March 4th, 2020, D'Angelo offers to plead guilty if the death penalty is taken off the table. The DA balks absolutely not no way but the prior november they prosecutors from different counties six of them to be exact sat down and went this is going to cost the taxpayers 20 million dollars and probably last 10 years so four months later on june 29th the prosecutors amend their uh original statement and they say that they will allow d'angelo to plead guilty to 13 counts of first degree murder under special circumstances including murder committed during burglaries and rapes as well as 13 counts of kidnapping in exchange for removing the death penalty hmm. 
August 21st, 2020, 44 years after he raped his first known victim, he will be sentenced for his crimes. Um, because it is the middle of COVID. It's not wild. This only yeah, happened two years ago. Oh my God. Um, it still throws me for a loop that it took so long, but like, I, I remember watching it, but so what San Francisco does is they're like, listen, it's not Sacramento. Not, they're like, people deserve, like the people who are affected by this and the community affected by this deserve to be allowed to see this sentencing. And because of the, you know, six feet requirements in, uh, that were public at the time, they actually hold this um, sentencing hearing at a uh, makeshift courtroom at Sacramento University. And they also utilize a nearby ballroom for the overflow gallery. Joseph shows up for his sentencing in a wheelchair, looking frail and pathetic. But the prosecution was uh, ready for that. And in fact, had given... um, the the, <laughs> the judge videos of Mr. D'Angelo in his cell prior to his sentencing. In those videos, he is not a frail little man. He is jumping around his cell, exercising, doing pull-ups, climbing on his bed, and in a real creepy way, he's putting like his blankets over the lights, which is something that he would sometimes do mm. with the rape victims. So even in prison, he's oh trying to gosh, relive memories these never die, I guess. So Judge Michael Bowman decides to sit D'Angelo and the defense team, uh, those are attorneys Joseph Kress, Alice Michael, and Diane Howard, facing him instead of the rest of the crowd. He wants to talk directly to Joe as the prosecutors painstakingly go through every single crime for the people watching both in the courtroom and at home this is shocking and then they move into the impact statements which take three days Mm. um i'm only gonna give you a couple of them um gay hardwick uh was victim 39 and um, she talked about how he attacked them while they were sleeping um she said he kidnapped me from my bed raped me repeatedly, sodomized me, forced oral copulation. He tormented me with threats of death for me and my loved ones should I make a sound or resist in any way. The aftermath of this attack has been with me for 42 years. Um, Ken Smith, the brother of victims Katie and Brian Maggiore, um, told Joe, you're not important. We'll remember Katie and Brian for the rest of our lives, but after your sentence, you'll be a nobody. Elizabeth Hupp, the daughter of Claude Snelling, uh, also spoke that day. And she said, for many years, I felt guilt for what happened that night. I felt maybe there was something I could have done or said to warn my dad to stay there and not come out. It wasn't until I became a parent myself, I realized there was nothing I could have done to keep my dad from trying to save me. My dad died saving my life that night, and he was my hero. What sickens and angers me the most is D'Angelo was able to live a normal life with his family for all those years. Well, my family could not be with my dad. Debbie Domingo McCullen, the daughter of Sherry Domingo, spoke. Um, she said, when D'Angelo stole my mom from me, he didn't just take away a person from my daily routine. He stole my vision of the future. He took away my desire and my passion to look ahead, 
set goals, strive for success. He left me empty. Today the devil loses and justice wins. Today I am the victor in a battle of good and evil. Um, Bonnie wasn't allowed to talk, but she was there. Um, And Bonnie and Jane Carson became buddies over time. And when Jane Carson made her statement, she referenced Bonnie and what Bonnie went through with Joe in kind of a, a moment of solidarity. Finally, after three days of all these people talking, Joseph gets up from his wheelchair, takes off his COVID mandated mask, and he addresses the court. He's like, I listened to all your statements, each one of them. I'm truly sorry for everyone I've hurt. And sits down. And he receives 12 life sentences plus eight years. It will never be enough for what he's done. As of today, he is incarcerated in protective custody at California State Prison, Corcoran. His family does not wish to be contacted in any way. And they want virtually nothing to do with him. Um, Sharon made one public statement after she divorced him in 2018. And she said, the defendant's criminal actions have had a devastating and pervasive effect on my life and my family. I will never be the same person. I now live every day with the knowledge of how he attacked and damaged hundreds of innocent lives and murdered 13 innocent people who were loved and now have been missed for 40 years or more. I live every day with post-traumatic distress where an unexpected noise or movement can be perceived by my mind as a threat to me. Simple everyday experiences, such as a car moving from one lane to another, bring fear. Once while shopping at Trader Joe's grocery store, a hand touched my forearm while I was looking into a freezer. My heart began to race and my body jolted. I was terrified that I was about to be harmed, when in reality it was someone I knew who just wanted to say hello. I've lost my ability to trust people. I trusted the defendant when he told me he had to work, or he was going pheasant hunting, or going to visit his parents hundreds of miles away. I worked graveyard shifts at Jack in the Box fast food restaurant and at Placer County Juvenile Hall. At times I studied late into the night and at law school. When I was not around, I trusted he was doing what he told me he was doing. Now, without that ability to trust, my relationships with other people have been severely impacted. I wish that nothing I say here will detract from any other person's impact statement. Um, Like I said, Bonnie doesn't want to be contacted. Um, His kids have done a few interviews, and his eldest daughter did make an impact statement as well. Um, Mainly, she just was shocked. She was just like, he's a good guy. He's my dad. He's a nice guy. He was a good guy. He raised my daughter. He's a good guy. Like she was just completely out right. of like shock. Like there was nothing that like Misha could like. There's some cognitive dissonance happening there because they have DNA evidence. There's no qualms, and your dad admitted it. You know, so there's nothing she could really do about that. Um, a few of his victims, like Jane Carson or Chris Bergetti, Chris was the 15 year old, um, wrote their own books describing their path to healing. And uh, those will be listed in the notes because those are also books that I read. Um, and I feel like if anybody should make some money off of a true crime story, it's one of the victims. They should they should get a cut of yeah what yeah. happened here. But uh, I really don't feel like the police did anything wrong here. This was one of those cases where they ignored the people or yeah, didn't do what they were supposed to do. It was just we didn't have. No, they were constantly technology. hunting. <laughs> They were on a hunt for him. <sighs> they never gave up. Oh, goodness. Oh. But 
Yeah, that's the conclusion. Oh, and he just looks so smug if you look at his face. You just want to punch his smug face. Yeah, he has a punchable (laughs) face. Absolutely. A truly punchable face. But yeah, you know, uh, a lot of the, like, I I put in most of our, uh, on the website, which is, I still, yeah, Mm. on the website, I put all the sources. You know, you want to support these people who are still being impacted because it only happened two years ago that they only caught them, you know. Buy those people. Yes. Yeah, yeah, help them out. A couple dollars. They went through hell. They deserve to, to get a little money somewhere in this horrible process. Oh, but God. that's all I got for oh, you. Know, that was a good one. Uh, that was. It's nice to have a, a decent yeah, police department yeah, to yeah. talk about, eh? <laughs> so rare. Oh, I'll give you that. I'll give you that one. Oh, okay. Well, this week I was juggling between topics to talk about, so I was I was like, uh, I want to talk about this, but then I looked something else up, and I was like, ooh, well, this one seems more interesting. <laughs> oh, okay. So this week, as many of you may or may not have seen in the recent Jordan Peele movie, um, Nope. It's really, really good. Oh, I such really, a good I, movie. Like, just don't stare at clouds. Oh. The people who didn't get it don't understand colonialism, <laughs> but the people who get it, get it. If you know, you know. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh such a good movie. Listen, I will listen. If that was out of the right now, I'd go watch it again. I love it. I loved it. So are we talking about aliens? Well, sort of. Not really. Hmm. Okay. What's wild, though, is after I saw that, I learned, like, after I watched Nope, I learned that they actually have a name. So we have different things. So, like, you know, we see, like, night light anomalies in the sky and whatnot. But they've actually, so now it's unidentified. UAPs. Yep. They're called UAPs now. But then there's also another name for UAPs that are biological in in nature. I was just like, oh, how cool, you know, unidentified aerial phenomenon. But apparently they are aware that some are of living. the UAPs are biological. Yes, and those are what we are talking about. Well, we are talking about today. Oh, no. So, it's so today gross. the topic is atmospheric beasts. Whoa. <laughs> I know nothing. I just learned that these things even existed like a month and a half ago. So All right. So for anybody who doesn't know what atmospheric beasts are, they're basically <sighs> creatures that live in our atmosphere. They may or may not be from Earth. Um, some some speculate they are like Earth animals slash things and some you know think that they're just aliens that are visiting or they got trapped here in our atmosphere and they live there now um so there are many 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 sightings of these 
uh, types of creatures. I am adding two pictures into the, the chat right now. Nice. Um, and, and, and I'm going. I'm going. I want to see one if it looks like the ones. That I have. Like I have other pictures of those too. Okay. Uh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. See. So mm-hmm. I've been watching a lot of Fright Club. Um. Which if folks don't know, it's a show that they created during quarantine with um Jack Osborne because he does ghost stuff. And the Ghost Brothers, who are these three black guys who also hunt ghosts. And they all sit and they look at clips and stuff. And so I feel like about half of their content is uh, alien related. And they're very into it. And so, like, they posted all sorts. They see they get all sorts of weird stuff. And um, <laughs> it's weird. It's scary looking. Um, um, so a lot. None of them look like little, 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 little so there are some that actually uh, so with the thing with atmospheres uh, atmospheric beasts is there are like a couple different uh, variations of these um, you have your okay. the pictures I just sent you they are called sky serpents mm-hmm. and and there are right. other okay. ones that are called like atmospheric jellyfish yeah the, and, I've seen those. And that, like, when I saw a picture of that, I was like, you know what that looks like? Okay, so I'm going off topic right now. I don't care. Um, so there's a, <laughs> so there's a Pokemon, right? It's 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 one of the newer ones, and it's called like an Ultra Beast. Okay, and and it looks okay. just like an atmospheric jellyfish because it comes. You know, it's know. not that weird, know, though, Brian, because a lot of Pokemon are real based animals. off of real animals and, and real creatures. Some of them are based off of lore and mythology, like the lady with the head, yes, the head, the head yes, on the back of her uh, head. That's the thing. Yeah. So, I mean, the Pokemon have been getting inspiration from the weird and wild of life for a while. Don't ask me where Machomp <laughs> came from, uh, the, the little guy. The people-looking really Pokemon are the weirdest ones, but the ones based off of society uh, are super interesting. So the fact that they, this quickly, I feel like this name, Atmospheric Beast, can't have existed for very long, and they already made a Pokemon <laughs> based off of it. It's kind of hilarious. So, yeah, those are type, the two types I'm going to talk about. I'm going to add another one in as well, because... Some people think that this is also an atmosphere of beast, which is actually, it's not an atmosphere of okay. beast. It's actually just a, a trick of the camera. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about that one. No, not ball not lightning. Ball lightning. <laughs> but yeah, and like atmosphere jellyfish are just like flying jellyfish. And I think that's like the type of creature like Jordan Peele put in his movie. It, it's Yeah, because, honestly, yeah, it does look like oh. Spoilers, sorry. Um, I know yeah, if you see it by now, then I don't care. Um, sorry, spoilers. Oh. <laughs> well, we're just telling you that the monster looks kind of like what yeah, it, Brian's talking about. We won't tell no, you any of the other cool parts. It is real cool. It's so many it real cool. Uh, <laughs> references. <laughs> I, okay, anyway. <laughs> Incredible. So, atmospheric jellyfish are actually also a type of ufo as well or it's i guess you could say uap now 
Yeah, yeah, they call them UAPs now. Yep. But yeah, they, they're definitely UAPs, and you know, they could be a UFO because they are sometimes mistaken for UFOs because of the shape of their bodies. Um, yeah, yeah, right. It's cylindrical and in nature. This has been cited by hundreds of different people from all across the world. Um, you get meteorology, meteorology, God, I cannot say that word, Meteor, meteorological <laughs> scientists, <laughs> and like you got military people seeing it, especially like people in the Navy when they're, when they're out. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the feds mm-hmm. release details of things, um, so. But yeah, uh, let's see. So this is like the sightings have been going on since like the mid 20th century and they've been like I said sighted like hundreds of times. Um it's a it's I guess this is a it is a newer uh UFO UAP sighting thing. I'm going to say keep saying UFO cuz you know it's UFO. Um <laughs> we, we grew up on UFOs. So. And it like it, it's it's a new one that is it's starting to be like research and stuff like that, and a lot of people, a lot more people are talking about it now. Um, and there are a ton of different sightings of the giant of this flying jellyfish. Like there's a new Norwegian uh, sighting, um, and it was mm-hmm. sighted in Norway by Per Arn. Uh, oh, I can't, I'm sorry. All right, anyway, Per Arn, right? And it's a a leading, the leading scientists theorize Mm -hmm. that it may have been caused by light from the aurora being bounced off of a space satellite. But there's no, there's no picture of it, but I see all these other pictures and I'm just like, there's no way because, hold on, hold on, hold on, where's this one? Um, I don't know if I could share it like that. Uh, um, there's there's one called a, a flying, flying a Dutch flying jellyfish, um, and this was spotted in the Netherlands. Okay. And a man named Harry Purton is the one that, that checked it out. And he like, I guess it was after a storm, and he he went to take pictures for his blog, right? And you know he sees you know this guy he looks so beautiful mm-hmm. out there, and then. <laughs> And, and then <laughs> that's real no 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 Talking i saw the this one picture looks and like i was it's sure it was like, one of the fake ones yeah like it's, yeah, yeah, like it's shooting off into it the sky it looks like a freaking yes. rocket yes like streaming through the sky yeah i was sure that that was like one of the photoshopped ones because people love like photoshopping like animals yes. in the sky and all sorts of things i didn't yes, realize that all... was real i am one of those people that like if I see not, not all UFO pictures, I'm gonna believe are real. But like something like this, it's like I don't know. That's kind of hard to fake. I mean, not really. You got Photoshop now, but older pictures, yeah, yeah. It's interesting though. It's an interesting. It looks like a jellyfish. It, no tentacles. It really just does. Like, <laughs> like the it's bottom just of a rocket. The like sky. just whoosh. Um. There's another one from China. Um, and it was spotted by you know Chinese Air Force, a Chinese Air Force pilot, and uh, 140 ground troops or ground officials. 
and this happened Monday, October 19th, 1998. And there's no picture of it, but there's like an artist rendition of it, of course. The airplane fly, airplane flying in the sky, mm-hmm. and, and then off in the distance you see this oh, okay. green shape looking thing that's moving around like a, you know, a flying jellyfish. It's just, it's just weird. Um, but yeah. I saw a video of one of those like serpent mm. things, but it was like, oh, okay. On oh, the ground. It was in like It's a funny because I took like, all right, when I was younger and like, I say younger, but I'm talking about like my early twenties. Oh, <laughs> When I was, you know, I, I, you know, I like taking pictures of the sky and stuff, and and I have this one picture. It's on my Facebook that I took oh, a picture of the sky, and you just the way the clouds were just it looked like waves in the sky. You know what I mean? Like the wind blew it some type of way, and just like it was just a row of waves going across. And I was like, mm. yes. Well, okay. I got one for you. You ready for this? Think about what an old flying saucer looks like. I have a picture that I took in Virginia standing on um, one of the, Uh the, you know, that long uh, bridge that takes you to Virginia Beach. (laughs) Um, My family unwisely allowed me to take all the photos. And so there are just photos that I took of the sky uh, looking out at the water. <laughs> so many of them. My mom was like, when I got these back, Brittany. Um, but in one of these pictures that I took while I was standing on like the, the bridge, because there's a section that goes underwater, above water, and then there's like a gift shop. We're up there at the gift shop area. It looks like an honest, there's like an outline of a, like a, a old timey flying saucer. So much, I, it looks so much like the old picture, like the old like movie things that I was sure that like somebody messed with the picture because this was film. Yeah, that's true. But the thing is, film can be tweaked. All right. That picture I just. So. Oh, that picture you have is cool. I'll have to find mine. I don't remember where it is. It might be in a, a photo album somewhere in my apartment. But yeah, it's weird. It's like a little tiny one. And I was just like, that's a flying saucer. And I never thought anything of it again. I just kind of was like, that's weird. And my mom was like, here are all these pictures of the ocean that you took and like plopped them on me. She's like, it's just the ocean. And I'm like, I thought it was pretty. The photographer, yeah. I figured myself as a a photographer. So I took pictures of it. <laughs> it wasn't even like sunsets or nothing. It was just plain ocean. I love ocean. it. I love it. <laughs> oh my god! That's why you don't let your ten-year-old oh, be the cameraman. But yeah, I that I still oh think about like, okay. That is awesome. That is awesome. I love it. I, love I still it. know if it's real oh. or not, but it's cool. So uh, the other uh, type of um, atmospheres, atmospheric beast uh, I was speaking on was a sky serpent, which my picture kind of looks like it's the back of a serpent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah, they're basically flying snakes in the sky or maybe even dragons. 
that that just you know they float or they fly in the air Ooh. and they but you know what though I would feel like and I would feel like what that you was, mean the, the aliens yeah, making fun of us <laughs> Like creating, yeah, creating yeah, an image yeah, of something yeah. I, that we know to be fantasy. I can see that. Like, look at these people over here mm-hmm. believing all this stupid it's shit, over here <laughs> making, fun of us. making it up. Let's... <laughs> like, and oh we're up here God. real. Um. Yeah, but they they move like like a how you know how a, a snake moves in the water or like a snake moves on the ground. They just you know undulate back and forth to fly. And normally, how mm-hmm. that's how the, the little the sky snakes or sky serpents fly, um, or like most Asian dragons that have the ability to fly. It's like like Lady, Lady Rainicorn, who is Korean, and she just you know flies on the the the, the light waves, whatever. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> but yeah, um, those pictures I sent you, those are sky serpents. Um, and yeah. <laughs> Apparently, we watched the same videos, so. Because I said it looked like it, like, was in, like, a parking lot, mm-hmm. and it, like, kind of um, moved around so the light, and then it people was are pretty unsure if they believe that sky serpents are real. They, because mainly, they, like, the picture I sent you, they look just like clouds. Like, that could be a cloud. Okay, not that one. No, not that one in the parking lot. Not one in a parking lot. Which one? But no, this doesn't look like a cloud to me. Oh, yeah. that. Like, well, I'm looking at the one where you can, it's a sunset. Okay, yeah, and okay. It's, com- yeah. it's distinctly <laughs> different from the other clouds. So I, there, I don't know if you could explain it as like a, what do you call that? Like when the, 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 that the, might be do the cool flame plying and it leaves those streaks in the sky, like. Maybe somebody did like a spin up. Like that makes sense to me, but like not that this is a cloud. Why is this cloud suddenly going yeah, yeah, the I opposite direction of all the other clouds I mean, straight up? I mean yeah, but some people are like maybe maybe they are atmospheric beasts or maybe they're just like a des- Yeah, yeah. Or maybe they're just a UFO that, you know, atmospheric is disguised to look like a living creature. You never know. Um, just because it's like a supernatural stuff, so you never know. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why they changed the name to unidentified aerial phenomenon. Um, but I mean, like, there's another one that I remember seeing of like the snake that looks like the, the, um, you know how the, like in yeah. Disney they used to do the little wand and they would make the Disney picture. It looks like somebody like took <laughs> one of those. And just like scribbled in the sky. You're talking about the Mickey Mouse symbol? Do you or, know a picture or... I'm talking about? No, it just like, but that, no, I'm gonna show you. Um, I'm gonna send, I'm send you the link. Apparently, this is a lightning, but I don't know. Because this looks like somebody hmm. had like one of those light sticks and just swished it around. In the sky. Apparently that picture is lightning. And I'm like, I, that seems weird to me. 
Like it legitimately looks like the clouds are opening up. That was March 2007. Hmm. Wait, is it in the chat? Hold on. It is. Hold on. Let me see. Yeah. So they the the people who post this are like certain phenomena are easily confused UAPs like mist or uh, borealis or shown here lightning related. That phenomena. is awesome though. And it's I'm like, like a, I this doesn't look like any lightning I've ever seen. What it looks like yeah. the sky is opening up. Like, do you see how the clouds are almost curled around the light? That's awesome. Like, there's a break in the sky. That's wild. I it's, want a better definition like, other than. It's like when a uh, fire tornado started being a thing. I need more. And I was like, what? What? A tornado on fire? <laughs> That's cool and also terrifying. That is cool, though. Um. Oh right. So, have you heard of air rods before? You have. Mm-mm. All right. So air. I don't. Think okay. So air rods are basic. What are air rods? I've heard of the cool <laughs> rods that you hold and the, the electricity goes between them. Science. Centers. Okay, is it they're, they're okay, air rods, <laughs> they call them sky fish or flying rods. Um basically okay. they are just a tube of something flying across the sky. And Oh, that looks so guess, cool. Oh goodness, yes. Yeah, it, it does, like doesn't bug. it? Yeah, it looks like it's like spinning real fast. And then I've seen I've seen some that are mm-hmm. way higher than a bug. Like I'm looking at some that seem way higher than a bug. A bug apparently, like, yeah. Apparently, air rods have never been seen with the naked eye by the naked eye at all. But you can definitely pick them up on like uh you know a, a, a okay. camera. Like, if you pull your phone out, take a picture, boom, you're good to go. You probably might catch an air rod in one of your pictures. Um, so, air rods aren't really a thing. Well, they are a thing. Yeah. Well, my favorite is when people are trying to, like, draw their <laughs> own version of it. I'm looking at some yeah, of that right so, now. Yeah, it does those look like are people are just really drawing cool. a fish, um, but in the air. But yeah, air rods aren't aren't a thing. Um, they're actually it's it's a what's well, not a hoax, I'd say, but it's a it's a camera trick or it's a trick of light with the camera. Um, so they are actually yeah. it's a bug. Actually, it's a bug. So it's, it's possible just a, that a it very could be a bug. Fast bug. With its wings flapping, that make it look like it's just a cylindrical thing that's flying through the sky. Uh, There's only one that I'm not sure about it being a bug mm-hmm. because it looks so clear. All the rest of them look very blurry, like it's moving too fast. Yeah, that's usually what they're, they they classify um, it as because they're like it's okay. just like a smudging or like it's it's going too fast, so you can't really catch the wings. So it just looks like. Wait, hold on a sec. 
Just look at the top left. Top left. In the picture I sent you. I mean... Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's the only one that's like, what is that? That feels like that could be something else. Yeah, absolutely. But the, the, I can totally get the one on the top right. That looks like a bug to me. Yeah. Yep. That's exa- I think that's exactly like, what it was. Have you tried to take it, a picture of a dragonfly with like a cell phone? <laughs> you actually have to have a camera that has a pretty um, solid um and for my speed. anime friends who who are very cultured as they and that, and who are who are very cultured and watch Jojo's Bizarre Adventure or who have read the manga <laughs> they 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 make reference to air rods in the mm. which one was it was it the I think it's part. This is the part that's out right now. I think that's the part that's out right now. The air oh, rods. Oh, okay. Um, the one with Jolene in the prison, escaping prison. That one, Stone Ocean. Sam knows that. Sam knows it. Oh. <laughs> you right, Sam would Joel- know. I immediately is, my I brain thought. I haven't Sam watched the, the newer episodes, but yet. And there you go. We we're talking about I'll JoJo's name. <laughs> oh goodness! But yeah, like I love the idea of like creatures besides birds living up in our atmosphere and living living in the sky. I know birds are freaking fake. They're cameras. Well, I mean, listen, we talk, I talked about this on the conspiracy crypt. If the government <laughs> is tricking us, they are fake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are drones here to spy on us. <laughs> if you've ever played Fallout 4, you know the birds aren't real. They Oh no. <laughs> what? The birds are not real. Um I played Fallout 4. Why okay, don't I remember? We're going off topic again, but fuck it. No, I'm going to come to talk about it now. <laughs> we'll talk about this afterward. Okay, okay. They'll listen to it. They they like the yeah, the conspiracy right, stuff too. Oh, <laughs> okay. Anyway, birds aren't real, um, but atmospheric beasts they may be real, just like any other cryptid. That's why I'm talking about today because it's they're basically a cryptid, but also an alien, but also a UFO. So. I don't know. I just, yeah. Um, I mean, that's really where it is with it. Though. I, I want to go back know. to the atmospheric jellyfish for a second. Like there, there, there are a ton. Like I said, a ton of sightings. They go back to mm-hmm. the seventies, actually. And the first one that is like sighted is actually what they based an SCP off of as well. Um. We sure as hell do. Um, oh, and it was in, I guess it was Danish, the Danish military. They saw this one and it looks just like a freaking jellyfish in the sky. That's like, like, um, not like the tentacles, like, like, yeah, they got the tentacles, but like the fluffy tentacles. You know what I mean? I forget which jellyfish that is. Like a, like a lion's mane jellyfish, something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah 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 i know which one you're talking about uh but yeah um 
I, I just like the idea of things floating in the sky that may be from this planet. And then you then you think about it, like, we travel to skies all the time. You think... You never know. Well, I don't know if planes go up that high, but you know what I mean? Like, there are some that can get high, and there's some... Like, we can't, we can't really search the whole sky all the time. And we can't search it. It's just all around the world. It's like the ocean no. a little bit, but not really. Well, yeah, um, that's what I got. Atmospheric. <laughs> Yes. I saw it and I was like, this is going to be a go. I Definitely like this. I like the idea of just giant jellyfish in the sky because I love jellyfish. I look like spaceships. And I got to talk about Nope for a second. Which is also good. <laughs> well. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. <laughs> I have fun question mark. I don't know if that's the right thing to say, but uh, it does Absolutely. make me happy to. We, we love you all happy. hearing that you. Well, I, lo- I love hearing. And um, I say this on TikTok all the time, but I want to say this here too. Um, there are some really amazing things that have happened to me since we started this process, and now there's something really big that could be on the horizon for both Brian and I, and. Um, the, the reason why that exists is because all of you are here. And uh, I say it a lot, but uh, thank you all for changing my life. And yes, have a great rest of your weekend. Bye. Have a good weekend.